Trigger warning, trigger warning, trigger warning. Hi, guys. It has been a long, dreadful 2020. I am hopeful that 2021 brings us better opportunities, reduction in COVID, reduction in the pandemic of racism, and everything else that's been going on. Guys, I'm so excited to be back on air to bring you guys more content. I am providing a trigger, trigger, trigger warning. We have interviewed a wonderful guest, September Burton, on intimate partner violence, domestic violence. And so I'm apologizing in advance. There is a lot of background and echoing information. Um, September couldn't record where she could record so for privacy reasons, she had to record at another location. And so the sound is, there is some background filter sound. However, I didn't want to have her re-record with me because this was so authentic that when you go and record, you're not going to get the authenticity back. And that's the purpose of Beauteous Me. So happy 2021, sending you guys such healing vibes, amazing content, and I'm here with you. Check out my website, www.iambeauteousme.com, guys. So tune in. Hola, and welcome to the Beauteous Me podcast, a relatable and authentic space for all. Tune in as we share stories of triumph, resiliency, and healing. We do this all while finding its inner beauty. My name is Jamily Whitfield, and the journey begins now. Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of the Beauteous Me podcast. So excited to have September Burton, who is an expert in the field, not only of infertility, but also intimate partner violence or domestic violence. So September is a fertility expert and abuse survivor. She is the champion for women survivors of domestic violence. After years of emotional, verbal, physical abuse and abuse of power, a common thread in the women she meets, she has finally managed to break free. September is the founder and CEO of Four Months to Fertile, working with couples and mothers struggling with primary or secondary infertility, and is the organizer of the first ever Colorado Fertility Conference. September is passionate about living a life of purpose, sharing her knowledge on the healing power of food, and freeing women from the debilitating shame and guilt that often accompanies domestic violence. September, I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for sharing space, sharing time for our audience members and the Beauty Is Me podcast. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. I'm honored to be here. It's it's truly an honor to be given the space to share my story and, and my journey. So thank you. Yeah. So in, in speaking about that, I always have my guests tell us about their story and um, tell us how did you get here with your story of intimate partner violence or domestic violence? So I got here um, because I wasn't educated, <laughs> because I wasn't taught. Um, I married a man when I was 24 years old, and he was definitely on the spectrum of narcissism and um, became abusive at the end of the relationship. He was emotionally abused, or I mean, um, he was emotionally abusive the whole time, but he was he became physically abusive. Um, and I remember one of the biggest things that stands out to me about that is I blocked a lot of that relationship out, so I actually don't remember a lot of things that happened. But um, at the end of the relationship, you know, he had gotten, he'd become physical and uh, my girlfriends could see that like I was not doing okay. And so, you know, they gave me the whole, go take care of you. You need some self-care, you need some self-love. Um, and so I scheduled a massage and I walked into the massage therapist's office and she said, what do you like when you get a massage? And I said, I don't like my legs touched. And um, that was a lie. And I didn't want her seeing my legs because there were bruises. They were, they were covered in bruises. 
And so, um, and in that moment, even as I heard those words coming out of my mouth, knowing that that's not true, like I would love a massage therapist to massage my legs, but, but hearing myself covering for him, it was, it was a, it was a moment of shame. It was deep. It was intense. Um, but I didn't go back on what I said. Um, I just sort of went with the massage and went with what, what I said, um, and so I didn't learn after that relationship. We got divorced, and um, and then I met number two um, about a year and a half later. And I thought I took a lot of time in between the relationships because I was very intentional, and I didn't want to repeat history and you know all of those sort of stereotypical things that you hear about. And so I was conscientious of that, and I really decided to learn about myself and take care of myself. And so I started doing a lot of meditation. I started learning a lot about my ancestry. I started like really kind of studying me, I guess, and learning and giving myself a lot of self-love. I thought I was doing really, really well. And so then I meet this man and I am sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, like I've, t- I've done such a great job taking care of myself. I've done what I needed to do. I've now got the man of my dreams. Like he's amazing. And, um, and at first he was, he was amazing. Um, and then, you know, slowly over time, the grooming started and, or I'm sure the grooming started immediately, but you know, over time I started, then the red flags were there. Um, he would humiliate me in front of his friends. He would do um, things that at the time seemed little, seemed like they weren't that big of a deal. And, oh, I can just talk to him because he'll understand because he loves me. And, and when you love somebody, you don't hurt them. Right. Um, and so I thought that I could just sort of explain to him that he was hurting me and then he would stop. Um, and then, so we, we got pregnant intentionally. Um, we, we were common law married, but not, we didn't have the ceremony. Um, and so we intentionally, you know, he asked me to have a child with him. I already had kids from my previous marriage. Um, he did not have any kids. He had never been married and didn't have any children. And so he wanted a biological child, which made sense to me, you know? And so I thought, okay, um, you know, and he watched me as a mom for over a year and he always told me what an amazing mother I was and things like that. Um, and then he specifically said, I want you to be the mother of my children. So, um, so we got pregnant and it was, as soon as I got pregnant, there was like a a switch in his brain, in his eyes. And I saw it like, it's, it's one of those moments that is just burned into my brain. Like it's, it's haunting. I can't get it out of my head when I saw the flip in his eyes and the switch and, and what it was now that I can articulate that is that he went from seeing me as like an autonomous individual, independent woman, things like that to his property. And I literally in his mind became his property as soon as I got pregnant. Um, and so just things just got worse and worse. And um, when she was about six months old was the first time that he became physical. And uh, he pinned me down to the bed. He was literally twice my size. I weigh 110 pounds. He weighs 220 pounds. Wow. Um, and so he pinned me down to the bed. Um, and then just, you know, I started to see lies, but I, I was lying to myself at the same time, I was covering for him. I was not being honest with myself about things that were going on. Um, there were some pretty horrific experiences. I mean, if you want me to tell you details about different experiences, I can. But um, at the end of the day, it was just... You can definitely share, but I'm sure women 
we, you know, when you're in the relationship, you're in a, a domestic violence situation, sometimes we make excuses if something was horrible. They had a bad day. They lost their job. Gum is tight. This is why they're reacting this way. And so if you sharing your story and being raw about it, which is part of this podcast and, and healing and journey and trauma, is that people can understand that what you've experienced because their story is, is probably similar to your story and how you've gotten to where you are. Yeah. So he would, he was the stereotypical, um, anytime anything important in my life um, came up, he would start a fight. Anytime we would go to spend time with my friends or family, he would start a fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was Mother's Day, the first Mother's Day after our daughter was born. She was born in August. So then the following May, um, he started a fight. And he did something, and I don't actually remember what it was that he did, but I was like, I am not okay with this, 100%. This is unacceptable. And so what ended up happening that Mother's Day is that he took our daughter, went to his mother's house, and I was left with my older four children, and I took them on a hike and took them on a picnic for Mother's Day. And so, you know, I made the best of it as much as I could. But he went to his mother's house with our daughter, and he lied to his mom about why I wasn't there. He told his mom um, something along the lines of that I was up. I don't remember what his lie was, but um, so there he lied about why I wasn't there. He told them that I wasn't there because I didn't want to be there, and um, that was not true. I wasn't there because he was being an asshole. Excuse my language. Am I allowed to cuss in this podcast? You are absolutely. I cuss sometimes. (laughs) Um, You know, I wasn't there because he was being an asshole. And um, he was treating me like shit. And so I, at that point, I was beginning to really stand up for myself. And so his mom sent me an email that night just attacking me, just attacking me. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, you need to understand what your son did. And tell you about your son, man. <laughs> before you come for me, let me tell you about your child that you birthed. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so I wrote her back and I, I explained the situation and I said, this is what really happened. And he lied to you. Um, whatever he told you, it was a lie. And this is the truth. And uh, I didn't really hear much more about it. But, of course not. Right. <laughs> um, but I did... I, the one and only time that I looked through his phone was that because I felt like they were in that email together. I felt like there was, it, it was a, a, a group attack, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I looked through his messages to make, to see if he had actually, you know, uh, collaborated on this with his mother and he had, um, I found a text message, um, or a couple of text messages, them going back and forth. She basically said, Hey, I'm going to send you this email. I want you to read through it before I actually send it to her kind of a thing. Um, so yeah, that was, and, uh, and so let's see, she was, my daughter would have been almost a year old cause she was born in August. That would have been in May. Um, and so I got pregnant with twins right about that time. I got pregnant again, unintentionally this time. I had a copper IUD put in after our daughter was born and um, the copper IUD, uh, now I have twins. <laughs> so that went out. <laughs> um, but, you know, the twins are wonderful and absolutely 100% worth it. Um, so, so about that time, I got pregnant with twins. I was about done with the relationship. At a, after that Mother's Day experience, after that, I kind of, I was done. But then I found out I was pregnant. And I remember 
both times that I found out I was pregnant, he wasn't speaking to me. He was punishing me with silence. I was always getting the silent treatment. Um, that was very, very common in the relationship. Um, I would do, it, it didn't matter what I did. If I said the wrong thing, if I wore the wrong makeup, if I wore the wrong shirt, if I looked at him the wrong way, I would get the silent treatment and it would go on for weeks sometimes. Wow. Um, and so, so I got, I found out that I was pregnant with the twins. And what happened was I was beginning to suspect that I was pregnant. I was already a week late for my period, but I didn't want to admit it to myself. I was like, no, I've got a copper IUD. Like this can't. No, 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 no. no. It's impossible. I know what my body feels like. When we, we know once you've had a child, you're like, mm-hmm. before the pregnancy test tells me, I'm going to tell the pregnancy test. But you exactly. know, you are not there, right? <laughs> Exactly. So he and I were not in a good place. I was a week late for my period. And um, I dropped my kids off at school one morning and I went to the grocery store and I actually went in the bathroom in the grocery store and took the pregnancy test in the bathroom in the grocery store because I didn't want to go home because I knew he was there, you know. Um, And it was like immediate positive. There was no hesitation whatsoever. It was an immediate positive. And and so I drove home. And I didn't say anything to him. I just, he was getting ready for work and I just handed him the test and I went back into the bedroom and I sat down on the floor and I cried because at that point I was ready to get back to my career. I was, the relationship was not going well. Like things were just in in a tough spot. Um, And again, if my girls ever hear this, like I adore my girls. I ever, I I don't have any regrets about having them. Um, but right. uh, it's, not, it's not about, you know, just, I love that you put that disclaimer. It's not about you as a mom, not loving your children. It was the situation you were in. And that's understandable because, um, of, of the trauma and you wanting to bring your children up in a healthy environment. So, you know, I want them to understand that their mama loves them, but it's, yes. you want a healthy environment. So it, it's not about them. Exactly. It's not about them. Um, so, so, um, I, he, he came, I was sitting on the floor and I was crying and I was sobbing actually. Um, and he came out of the bathroom and he sat down next to me and he said, you know, we're a team, we're in this together. We got this and started giving me, give me this big rah, rah speech. Right. And then went right back to not speaking to me. And it was like a week of me having to cope with these emotions of I'm pregnant again with him giving me the silent treatment for God only knows what reason. And so, um, it was, it was awful. It was awful. And after, you know, things never really got better in the relationship. I threw myself into work. I went back to school. I started studying biochemistry. Um, you know, I was a mother of five already. So between taking care of the kids and between going back to school and trying to work, like I just didn't, I kind of almost just pretended like he wasn't even there. Not really. Like he was there, but I just, Mm -hmm. none of my energy really was going to him because he was not a very pleasant person to be around anyway. Um, And so, so I basically just threw myself into other pieces of my life. Well, he couldn't handle that. He couldn't handle not being the center of attention. He couldn't handle, you know, knowing that he was doing things that were not that he wasn't perfect. His mom literally tells him that he's perfect. Um, yeah. The first time I heard her say that, I was like, wait, what <laughs> did you really just tell him that he's perfect? Like you don't say that to your child because then that causes some problems. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, a lot of the experiences were just about the silent treatment. I mean, there was so much grooming. There was so much grooming. He tried to, um, 
be better than my children's father. And so like he even had to buy better pillows. Like he was like, I, they need better pillows than they'll get at his dad, at their dad's house. And even at the time I was like, that's a little bit ridiculous. Like their kids just get them pillows. They'll be fine. Right. Um, right? So he wants to prove to the world that he's the best. And the only one that can see his monster is September. Exactly. Exactly. Which is why I still live in hiding because I have seen the monster and I'm vocal that there is a monster there. And, um, and so I still, to this day, live in hiding. After we separated, he became a stalker. Oh, I, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> um, he became a stalker and he's an attorney. And so he set everything up so that he would be able to, he recorded me all day, every day for seven months for the last seven months of the relationship um, so that he could build a case against me and be able to get full custody of our kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, you know, I went to him in August of 18, it would have been August of 18, which the twins would have been just a few months old. So you can imagine I'd had three babies in less than two years. And, um, and I went to him and I said, I'm not doing well. I'm not okay. And I knew, uh, I know more now than I did at the time that uh, most of that was about him. It was about the relationship and the abuse and the emotional and psychological abuse that was going on. But, um, but what he did was rather than offering any support or saying, let's get you some professional help or, you know, any of those kinds of things that you would expect from a partner, he started recording me. And he was recording to study and analyze and manipulate and um, gaslight. And um, he, it's eerie, actually. I've received, because of court proceedings and things, I've actually, he's had to send me, they've told him that he has to send me some of the recordings. And the way that they're labeled is like, this is creepy. Like, she, you know, one of them says, September is done yelling at me and is calm now. And I'm like, that's, that's really... <laughs> Like, I have to laugh because that's just creepy right there. Um, And so he never cooperated with all of the court proceedings. He cheated his way through all of the court proceedings. Um, And I even looked at the judge. I put this on Facebook yesterday, actually. I looked at the judge at one point during the hearing, and I said, they're cheating, Your Honor. And, um, And this was an honest judge. Later on, we were switched to another judge who was not so honest. Um, but this was an honest judge and he sort of nodded like very, very slight nod. Like he, he knew, and he was agreeing with me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but they cheated. He cheated his way through all of the court proceedings. Um, he threw out blatant lies. He said that I left because, um, I had met a man who owned a condo. And so I had run away from my children for a man who owned a condo which, you know, I lived in the women's shelter. I fled to Hawaii. I was put on a plane by some friends who said, you need to get out of here for your safety. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I went to Hawaii and I lived in a women's shelter. And so there's records that prove that that's just a blatant lie that they're, you know, um, I did not leave my children for another man to go live in somebody's condo. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but it's in the, it's in the court records as fact that that's what happened. So he was hacking into my home security system. He was using my children's cell phones to track our location. I got flat tires, stolen mail. Um, I mean, you name it, it happened. He, I know he covertly entered the home. Um, 
And so, and I tried to seek a protective order, but the judge, again, was not an honest judge. And so my protective order was denied. And then she, she um, berated me. You you hear what you said? I'm going to stop you right there. She, and I've had this conversation before in podcasts. It's like women, instead of supporting each other, instead of listening to these stories, and this is like deeper than that. It's like the, the, the female voice to another female voice is not respected, is not understood, it's not united. We take for face value the male voice, the male authority, and forget about someone else in that situation. So I'm I'm glad you said she, and this is for all you she's. <laughs> and now we're not like, we, we, we don't support each other. We really don't. Yes. But that was such a huge part of my healing process was that in Hawaii, I actually surrounded myself with women who did support me, women who did uplift me, women who did nurture and heal me. And they literally helped me piece my soul back together. And so um, is that okay? Can you hear that? Um, So I... That was that was such a huge, huge piece of my healing process was getting those women surrounding me. So when you find that circle of women who do support you, who do uplift you, it's so magical. It's like there is nothing in the world compares to what happens when women support women. But you're right about the misogyny like that side of it, when women just completely ignore another woman's voice and say, oh, he's such a good boy. And this judge literally told him what a great father he is, told him that, you know, she was so sorry that he had to pick up all the pieces because I just up and left one day. Like literally this, these are the things that she said in the courtroom. And, um, and so, so, um, yeah, it was just, it was crazy. But my healing journey was because of the women. I would not be in the place that I'm in right now, able to speak out, able to share my story, if it wasn't for the women who Your tribe. surrounded me. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I firmly believe that, that you have to get a good tribe in order to support you. And um, I'm calling out all women to be more supportive, be more compassionate, be more yeah. understanding and um, supporting one another and uplifting one another. Yeah. And that's that's a big part of my platform and why I speak at this point is because I want other women out there who feel alone, who feel isolated, because these abusers are so good at isolating you. Um, But I want other women to know that, you know, you're not alone and that I believe you, because that's one of the hardest pieces about this type of abuse is everybody looks at you and says, he's such a great guy. Like, he's too nice. Not him. He would never do this, you know. And people don't believe you. And to this day, I have people who don't believe me. And, you know, of course, I know my story. I know my truth. And I stand in my truth. And I'm not backing down. Like, there's just, I'm not backing down. Um, But I want other women to know that there are people who believe you. And I'm one of those people. I believe you. You tell me he's abusing you. I believe you 100%. Yeah. So so September, um, WebMD had an article in August and it cited, and I'm going to read, data from a major Massachusetts hospital found a significant year-over-year jump in intimate violence, intimate partner violence cases among patients. Nearly all women who saw emergency care during the COVID-19 pandemic's first few weeks, like they saw a, an increase and a rise. Can I think it's important for us to kind of have that discussion because um, the pandemic isolated a lot of people. 
Yeah. And people were quarantined. They were home. They were social distancing. So this was like the perfect opportunity for um, a perpetrator because you're a perpetrator um, to to isolate, to continue to isolate and abuse someone further. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that one, there's a lot of stress. And so anytime there's stress added, it's going to escalate any emotions that are already there. But then you're right about the isolation piece. I think a lot of times women in these types of relationships, like you try to lose yourself in work, you go out with your girlfriends or, you know, do whatever you have to do, get out of the house with your kids, whatever you have to do to kind of get away from him. I think you do it. I think you find excuses to get away. But when you know, COVID hit and quarantine happens, all of those kinds of things go away and you're just sort of stuck with each other. And um, I had already fled. So, you know, I didn't have to experience any of that with my abuser. We'd already been separated for a year by the time COVID hit anyway. But, um, but yeah, I can only imagine. And for any woman who is quarantined with an abuser, I'm so sorry. Like I, I wish there was, you know, I say get to a women's shelter. I lived in women's shelters. I've, I've been to two separate shelters and I think they're a godsend. I think they're an absolute godsend. So. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about um, survivors speaking their truth and finding trust? Um, I think speaking your truth for me, a big part of speaking my truth is my healing process. Um, there's shame can only live in darkness. And so when you speak, you're bringing light to your experience. And when you speak, that's when the shame starts to dissipate. It cannot survive in, in the open. Um, one of the hardest pieces and the final piece of me sharing my story was that I lost custody of my children. There is so much shame around losing custody of your children, especially when I know I'm a good mother. I, sh I should never have lost custody of my children. Did you lose custody um, of all your children? I did. And the older four, they didn't even hold a hearing. There, was, there wasn't even a hearing. They just said, you're done. <laughs> he gets everything. Um, wow. So it's pretty, it's pretty bad. My case is pretty bad. Um, so admitting that, it took me a little while. I, I started speaking out about the abuse, but I didn't start speaking out about losing custody of my children right away. And it's the shame piece. I mean, even the abuse, you know, talking about that day that I went to the um, massage therapist's office and told her, don't, don't touch my legs. You know, why, why couldn't I just say, look, I I'm with an abuser. My legs are bruised up right now. And you know, she could have, she could have been supported. I don't know how she would have responded. Um, she probably would have just offered some empathy and given me a massage anyway and said, you know, I'm here for you if you want to call the police, but if you don't call the police, that's your choice. Um, so so I think that talking about it and bringing it to light is a big part of releasing the shame and getting out of the shame. And you can't heal in shame. You just can't. Right. So I think that getting away from the shame is, is a huge piece of it. Yes, absolutely. September, can you tell us, do you have a relationship with at least the older ones? I, I understand the, the other three, but the, your older Children. I do. Um, I do keep in touch with my older ones. They have their own cell phones at this point. So they're, it would be pretty hard for anybody to say, no, you can't call your mom because right. they're too old for right. something like that to happen. Um, so I do keep in touch with them. And then, um, you know, there's 
some something I want to say, but I, it's not quite time yet for me to say that publicly. But I will at some point. And that's okay. Um, that's your journey. So, so I do keep in touch with them. They're not doing well. I mean, they're they're good kids. They're bright. They're social. They're they're wonderful children, but they're failing. You know, and I tried to tell the judge, like, look, don't make them don't let their father switch schools. Like they've been through too much. They've lost their mother at this point. They've been through too much. Can you just at least like not let him change their school? And the judge was no. Um, And so he did switch their schools and now they're failing all of their classes, which breaks my heart as their mother, because I know how smart they are. I know how capable they are. I know that they were getting good grades before all of this happened. Um, and so it's just, it's so hard, but you know, I'm not, I'm not a quitter and I'm not, um, I'm not a victim. And so I'm, I'm, things are, thing wheels are turning, things are happening right now. I'm going back for my kids. Love I'm it. getting my kids back. So love it. September, can you provide us some resources or tools for our listeners experiencing domestic violence, intimate partner violence, and also for clinicians um, and people and family support systems, et cetera. Yeah. You know, for family support systems, just the most important thing is believe, believe the person. I saw something on social media recently that said, when a woman tells you she's being abused, believe her because her description of the violence is only the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so true. I think that there's so much more beneath the surface that she's not even talking about. Um, and so for anybody, any any support people, just believe her. Just believe her and hold space for her. If she needs to cry, just let her cry. If she needs to talk, let her talk. If she needs to scream and rage, let her scream and rage. Um we need to just simply hold space for each other and be there for each other. Um, for the victim herself, you know, figure out what it is that you're going to need. Well, number one, I think it's safe because trauma brain is very disorganized thinking. And that's one of the things that it leads to. And so that's why police have a hard time with victims because they're, I think, the way that they describe the stories is so disorganized. Um, but that's trauma brain. You know, it's really hard to think in trauma brain. And so when somebody sort of accepts that, I remember at the women's shelter in Hawaii, um, I was sitting there talking to the director and I was trying to share my story with her. And I got to a point and I, I said, I can't, I can't remember what's going on. Right. Like, I can't, re- I can't answer your question. I don't know. And, um, and she said, that's okay. That's trauma brain. And I was like, oh, well, thank you for like making my, you know, embarrassing moment. Okay. You know, so I think that was really powerful that she just sort of gave me space to, to have trauma brain. Um, so, so I think for me, meditation was huge. Mm-hmm. Um, healing, finding that healing space in the meditation, in the quiet of that, mm-hmm. um, Another thing is, you know, find a tribe, whether that's on social media, whether that's physical, you know, you can be close to women, but you've got to find a tribe. I, I was blown away when I started reaching out on social media and sharing my story publicly by the number of people who said, me too, wow. me too. And um, it's just, it's disgusting, Yeah, really. You know, I mean, it's helpful in the healing process, but it's it's hard that other people share my story. 
in the shelter in Hawaii, there was another woman there and we would talk about our perpetrators and share stories. And they, it was like, they use the exact same phrases. Like, what is there some training school? I, I, you know what? They're, they're, when people are perpetrators, I've, I've said that before, but I think about it in so many contexts with when, when we talk about grooming in the domestic violence aspect, I work with um, children who have survived commercial sexual exploitation and there's that part of it that's that's the, very similar as well. It's it's the power and control wheel, which is yeah. the grooming, the niceness, charming, and then the darkness. Once you start unpeeling that onion, is like boom, eyes watering. The animals yeah. come out. Yeah, that wheel it's powerful. If you look at that and really analyze what's going on, I still to this day work with a therapist, and that's another thing that I strongly recommend is find a good therapist. Um, my therapist is an absolute godsend. And like I said, I still work with her to this day. Um, but w- at one point when I was figuring out all of the abuse and really starting to open my eyes and allow my eyes to be opened to see the abuse, we went through and we went down the, the list of the different types of abuse and he hit every single one. There was not one type of abuse that he didn't do to me. And I, I was surprised because I didn't think that he was that bad. Now I do, you know, now I know (laughs) he's worse than that bad. Um, But, um, but at the time I was like, he's not that bad. I mean, you know, he's, he can be a jerk, but you know, whatever. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, working with a good therapist, I think is critical too. That was definitely one of the biggest pieces for me. And for clinicians, what would you recommend for working with um, trauma survivors, survivors of intimate partner violence, domestic violence? Are you, when you say clinicians, are you specifically talking therapists? therapists? Mental health therapists, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest thing is hold space for her, listen to her, really listen. I saw something on social media just a day or two ago where somebody, a woman said, if your therapist is like forgetting important details, does that mean you should find a, a new therapist? And it's like, yes. <laughs> yes. If your therapist isn't remembering the big, important pieces of your story and you're having to retell your story, then you need to find a new therapist. So, um, yeah, find somebody who fits you. You know, my my kids are in therapy, my older kids, and I tell them, if your gut ever tells you that anything is off with your therapist, you tell me immediately because you need to use your intuition. I think when it comes, because therapists have a large amount of control over your emotional state. And so you've got to trust your intuition when it comes to working with a therapist and make sure that you're working with somebody who is the right person for you. As far as, you know, from the clinician's perspective, I, I think the only real advice is just hold space, just really, truly listen and hold space. I don't think that there's a perfect way or a right way to work with a trauma victim because it's so subjective. It's so personal. And the way that you process the abuse and the trauma is so personal and individualized. So I don't think that there's a perfect way or a right way, but just let her express herself and let her be and listen to her. Yeah. Really listen. September, where can people find you? I have a nice, unique name. Um, So it's one of the good things about having a unique name. September Burton is not very common. So I'm all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. On Instagram, it's actually September M. Burton. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, 
but yeah, uh, LinkedIn as well. So all over all of the social media platforms, if you want to email me, if you just need somebody to listen and believe you, um, info at septemberburton.com. And my blog is on septemberburton.com. So that's where you can find, you know, my story. It's all written out um, in a lot more detail on the blog. So Love it. September, thank you so much for being vulnerable, for sharing your space, for sharing your journey through trauma and healing, for being with us this day and for being you. Um, And I just want to thank you. Thank you for surviving this so that you can share this with other women, with other people who are experiencing this and knowing that they're not crazy, they're not alone, that something is happening to them and that they are capable of no matter what other obstacles, because you still have your other obstacles as a mother and not having your children, et cetera. But that, you know, just seeing how resilient you are and being here and, and, and not letting the other things really take hold of you. It's just beautiful. And I'm really grateful, really humbled that you shared this time with me and I'm rooting for you and your children. I really am. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I hope this episode fed your soul. Please be sure to download new episodes. You can also head on over to rate, review, and subscribe. For more updates, find us at www.iambeauteousme.com or on Instagram at iambeauteousme. Don't forget to use the hashtag beauteousmepodcast for your feedback.